Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey friends and neighbors, you're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 21, The Giving Spirit. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. As we enter the thick of the holiday season, I'd like to extend my sincere wish for yours to be truly happy. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy New Year, and Happy whatever you and your loved ones may celebrate. It is a time for the giving of gifts. So in this week's episode, I wanted to discuss a little about the spirit of generosity, how it is shaped, supported, thwarted, and targeted. In very young children, it can be difficult to get them to share. That capacity hasn't quite yet developed. But around preschool age, something shifts, and children are more likely to be generous with their toys and share with peers. There is a healthy literature looking at these early roots of giving and what might influence, positively or negatively, our early signs of generosity. When given a choice between different descriptions of potential play partners, or especially when directly witnessed, young children definitely gravitate more towards those with a giving spirit. Children prefer to spend more time and play more with peers who they know firsthand are generous and share they are far less likely to want to spend any time or play with peers who they know to be a bit more stingy and selfish. However, if the peer is seen as even more generous than oneself, the child won't want to spend more time and play. No one wants to be one-upped by the givingest giver. Makes us look bad by comparison. But when it comes to non-parent adults who are uber-generous, children tend not to care. It's as if the adults are part of a totally different category and there is no use in social comparison of generosity level, so the kids don't care. Other studies demonstrate that the degree of generosity shown by preschool children is most proportional to the anticipated rewards, meaning children who do not expect to feel good about sharing and giving don't give. And those who do expect all the feels from being generous are more likely to actually give. Other interesting factors that affect the child's generosity include group size. The smaller the group, the more likely children are to be generous, and the larger the group, the lower the generosity. This influence doesn't mature out of us as adults either. We're more likely to share with the small number of neighbors on the block than to be willing to part with the same value that would go toward taxes supporting the benefits of 300 million fellow Americans. No matter the group size, increased contact from collaboration should help, right? In fact, After children work together to solve a problem, this does increase group cohesion. After collaboration, children are more willing to give up an advantageous distribution for the sake of equity among the collaborating group. They are more generous with their peers. On the other hand, 
they are less willing to accept any generosity unless it is equitable. They are more likely to reject a disadvantaged allocation and get nothing if they know that someone else is getting more. Just like a monkey would love to get a free cucumber, unless, of course, she sees a different monkey getting a free grape. That's not fair. So she'll hurl the cucumber back, insulted by the generous gift of free food she perfectly accepted before, now that she knows that some other monkey is getting something even better. And just like adults, children are much less likely to be generous with peers that don't necessarily share the same interests. If little Johnny loves trucks and little Mary is into dinosaurs, she's likely to get the short end of the stick compared to little Howie, who shares Johnny's love of all things trucks. The more similar another seems to us, the more we are likely to share. The more other they seem, the lower our generosity, a theme that we'll see come up again and again. Take, for example, oxytocin. It's sometimes called the love hormone or cuddle hormone, as it's released during orgasm or breastfeeding. It's meant to solidify and strengthen a bond between lovers or between a mother and a baby. When dosed with exogenous oxytocin from a nasal inhaler, compared to an inhaled placebo, adults are much more likely to be generous, but only to their preferred in-group, primarily close friends and family. Oxytocin actually has the opposite effect for out-group members. When given the love hormone, you are actually much less likely to be generous to anyone who's an other, a casual acquaintance, a stranger, and especially less generous to anyone seen as an adversary. It's not just sniffing oxytocin that has this effect. When young girls play a classic economics game called the dictator's game, the level of oxytocin measured in their saliva is the clue to knowing their generosity. If the girl is playing with a friend, salivary oxytocin rises and she's very generous. If she's playing with anyone else, there are still elevations in salivary oxytocin, but she becomes more stingy and less likely to share. It's like oxytocin, the supposed love hormone, only reinforces the inness of the in-group and the outness of the out-group. This is shown to be the case with individuals' attitudes about different racial and ethnic groups. The greater the otherness, the higher the oxytocin and the worse the attitude. Or by giving exogenous oxytocin in a spray, it increases the otherness of anyone seen as being outside the preferred in-group. In general, this phenomenon is known as social discounting. The closer you are to someone, by age, gender, or other demographics, interests, life stage, or life experience, the higher the likelihood of generosity. Whereas the more socially distant someone is, the farther the difference in age, demographics, interests, etc., the less and less generous we become. There are certainly a lot of factors that will influence any given person's sense of generosity, both personal and situational. An interesting study looked at children from across the globe to try to measure the strength of many of these influences. What they found is that only about 20% of the variance in children's generosity could be explained by these five factors. Age, gender, socioeconomic status, culture, whether individualistic or collectivist, and some social cognitive mechanisms. So most of the influence on someone's generosity is not big-picture, unmodifiable things, or things that one has no control over. Rather, most of what will make a person more generous or less giving is personal experience, not where you grew up or your family's status. This leaves a lot of room for personal growth. For example, whether someone acts generously or not may depend a lot on expectations for the future. Research studies have shown that if someone expects to be dealing soon with someone who is generous, they themselves will start acting more generous as well, regardless of whether that expectation comes to fruition. 
This situation influences expectations. We are less generous if there is a short time horizon, possibly due to the perception of limited opportunities for getting the favor returned. But with longer time horizons, we are more generous. And the greater the availability of resources, the more generous. But when the drought hits, generosity plummets, again, likely due to the perception of low chance of reciprocity given the stark situation. Other studies show that when a consistently selfish player in some of these economics games encounters a more generous player, just that exposure is enough to start increasing cooperation and generosity among the previously selfish. Simple exposure to the generous plants a seed of generosity. In fact, separate studies have demonstrated that when someone is on the receiving end of generosity, they are much more likely to pay it forward. One of the best predictors of being generous is having been the recipient of someone else's generosity. The caveat is, when a player observes someone being generous to a third party, only witnessed generosity and not experiencing it firsthand, that actually increases selfishness, like retribution for not reaping the benefits of someone else's generosity. It may be better to give than receive, but it is far worse to see giving and receiving without direct involvement on either side of that transaction. Our perception of the recipient heavily influences generosity. Specifically, the characteristics or history of the recipient do not matter as much as whether or not the characteristics or history are seen as mutable or changeable. For example, if you see someone driving too fast, swerving between lanes, near-miss accidents left and right, you might be disinclined to be generous with them if the assumption is aggressive person, bad driver. These are the essential qualities of that person. On the other hand, if you're told that his wife is having twins and her water just broke and he's rushing to get to the hospital, his driving actions seem situational and not the result of some immutable personal quality, and generosity increases. This is an extension of what's known as the attribution bias. If I do something bad, it's because of the situation. If I do something good, it's because I'm a good person. If she does something bad, it's because she's a bad person. If she does something good, it's just because of the circumstances or luck. We are more generous when good actions are seen as essential qualities of the recipient, and bad actions are just the result of circumstance. And we are far less generous to a recipient when bad actions are seen as bad judgment, and good actions are seen as a fluke of circumstance. Social status has an interesting effect on generosity as well. Individuals who view their own social status as legitimate are much less generous. If I deserve to be here, it is my God-given birthright to be superior. I don't need to be generous. However, if someone views their social status as illegitimate or shaky and potentially under threat, generosity increases, likely as a tool to quell objections to any inequality. Exogenous chemicals can also easily manipulate one's generosity. We've already seen the effects of oxytocin. When around the close in-group, adding extra oxytocin to the mix increases generosity. But when among strangers or outsiders, oxytocin outright flattens the generous spirit. One randomized controlled trial looked at giving a dopamine boost. Participants either received a dopamine agonist, which is a molecule that tricks your brain into thinking it just got a hit of dopamine, or a placebo. Dopamine is primarily a reward hormone, and is one way the brain reinforces a particular action or experience. In overdrive, it can lead to addiction. So the assumption was that there would be a perception of higher reward from being generous, and that would be reinforced, leading to greater and greater generosity. What they saw was quite the opposite, in fact. The researchers saw that individuals were actually far less generous 
under the influence of dopamine. Even more interesting, among women but not men, the greatest drop in generosity was toward people they were closest to. The ones you would think would be the greatest recipients of generosity got shafted the most thanks to dopamine. Another randomized controlled trial looked at the effect of MDMA, or ecstasy. The researchers saw that ecstasy did increase generosity, but unlike the dopamine effect, individuals were only more generous to those whom they already had a close relationship, much like the oxytocin effect. This effect was even higher for those participants whose personality assessments demonstrated a higher degree of trait agreeableness. What does any of this have to do with sleep or feeling rested? Not a whole lot, but it is that time of year. But one key imaging study demonstrated where in the brain activity increases during the act of generosity. And of course, imaging correlations of increased activity is not the end-all be-all of exact network location and function, but it does provide some interesting information. Because the region of the brain that seems to be at the helm of one's generosity is somewhere called the temporal parietal junction, or TPJ. It's a region close to the top of your ear. But what it's called where it is isn't what matters. What matters is what else that region does. The TPJ is also highly active during dreaming, specifically when thinking or dreaming in regards to social-emotional processing. And the more active the TPJ is during dreaming, the better we are able to remember our dreams, and the more effective our emotional processing during dreaming. More TPJ action equals more fear extinction with less emotional reaction and more emotionally processed response. So does generosity affect dreaming? I don't know. Does dreaming affect generosity? I don't know that either. But it would be reasonable to propose that strengthening the action of the TPJ by facilitating higher quality dreaming, for example, avoiding the pitfall of sleep apnea and nightmares as discussed in episode 19, that higher quality dreaming without interference may influence generosity. And one could equally argue that there may be an impact on emotional processing efficacy of dreams based on one's generosity level. These associations have not been pursued, but the co-location in the brain of these two activities is very interesting and worthy of further exploration. Check out wellrestedmd.com for more information and updates, and have a wonderful holiday season. May your days and nights be filled generously with sweet dreams. Thanks for listening.